Hey, Shani. Hey, yourself, Terry. Uh, where do we want to start today? The question is not where we want to start, but when. Okay, that sounds interesting. Let's go. Here we are in the Clonmacnoise Monastery in Central Ireland around 1,200 years ago. Uh, okay. Stay with me here. I promise it'll make sense. Okay, so Clonmacnoise at this time is at the crossroads of two major routes across the country and has become a bustling center of religion, trade, and education. But I want to take you to this one particular room in the monastery, down this hall. This is the Scriptorum. Uh, okay, so this is one of those rooms where scribes would copy books by hand in the Middle Ages. Right. Movable type printing is just around the corner, and the printing press itself is a few hundred years in the future. For now, if you want a copy of a book, you have to get one that's been hand copied and that was almost always done in monasteries. Uh, so we talked in the last episode about how antibiotic drugs are roughly 100 years old. So what could this possibly have to do with antibiotic resistance? Let me show you. See that scribe right there? His name is Brendan, and he's about to make a mistake. Cataartinish. Oh. I think that's Irish for oops. Yep. He had a slip of the pen that made one word illegible. So he's going to let that word dry. Then get out a knife and scrape the ink off before starting again. Brendan's been at this for a while. He's getting tired, and he's going to make an even bigger mistake this time. Katartanish. Ah. Oh, ah. This time, the error is bad enough, he's just going to set that page aside to dry and start all over again. I'm still not picking up on the relation to antibiotic resistance here. Patience, Terry. You know I love theatrical storytelling. All right, here it comes. Brendan is going to make one more error. Did you catch that? Uh, he didn't notice that one. Nope. He copied the wrong word, but the error slipped past him. Now when he finishes, that book will go out in the world with that copy error tucked inside it. It being a rare book, Brendan's copy will be taken to other monasteries, where it will be recopied again and again. When those manuscripts eventually become the source material for printed books, Brendan's slip-up will still be there. That book, for all intents and purposes, has now been changed. It has evolved. It's mutated. I see where you're going with this now. I knew you'd get there. Thank, thank you for the vote of confidence. That book has now changed and will move into the future in a slightly different form. If that book's copied over a thousand times by hand, each one of them might have an error in it. This is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sobolski, director of RARE's Bacterial Diseases Branch. Most of them are, are meaningless and don't really change the interpretation at all. And then maybe one or two are. And even those one or two are, you know, they're, they're still meaningless until the right situation comes along. Maybe a hundred years after it, or a thousand years after it's written, the world has changed, somebody's reading it, and now suddenly that, that error, which 
nobody noticed at the time is, is suddenly very relevant to how I can interpret it. In the same way that a copying error changed that book, copying errors cause mutations in bacteria all the time. Except, of course, instead of one book that's copied a thousand times, bacteria may replicate a billion times a day. Right. And many of those changes are either meaningless or, as in Brendan's big error, make the result unintelligible, which in the case of a microbe could mean its death. But, as Lieutenant Colonel Sobolski points out, the changes that make it into these bacteria may not mean much until the bacteria needs it to. Until, for example, your doctor comes along and starts giving you antibiotics. Then the version of the bacteria which has an antibacterial defense mechanism becomes important. Now all of a sudden that, that copy you know, rises to the top and rules over all the others because it's the only way that the bacteria survives. I'm Terry Welch, Strategic Communications Director of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which we call RARE. And I'm Army Captain Shanee Allen, Commander of RARE's Headquarters and Headquarters Company. And you're listening to Rare Science. We're going to hear more from Lieutenant Colonel Sobolski in this episode, as he and others walk us through the tricks bacteria use to fight off antibiotics. We'll even hear from the discoverer of penicillin, and let me warn you, he gets judgy. Stick with us. So, as Lieutenant Colonel Sobolski was saying, bacteria are constantly mutating and changing over time. But these changes, usually small, often don't come to be important until they need to. When you talk to infectious disease docs a bunch, you hear them say again and again how smart bacteria can be in fighting off things designed to kill them. So obviously they're not smart in the way that we think of it as, but there's amazing power in exponential growth. So basically, you take a bacteria that can grow and divides literally billions of times in the course of a 24-hour period and then throw in the ability to randomly and spontaneously mutate its genome and the bacteria, you know, quote-unquote, finds a way. So basically, with those two phenomenon, exponential growth and random mutation, if you then add what we call a selective pressure, which is basically, you know, throw in an antibiotic, which presents the bacteria with a situation of either mutate yourself a solution or, or perish, the bacteria ultimately, you know, finds a solution. It is tempting to think of it as the bacteria um, intentionally making those mutations. But if you go all the way back to Darwin and the basic idea of evolution, it's all random. While the changes they undergo might be random, humans are often guilty of helping bacteria learn better and faster. And this is something we've known about pretty much since antibiotics were discovered. You may remember we introduced you to Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin in our last episode. Fleming was aware that there were bacteria that were resistant to penicillin, but he also worried that the frivolous use of penicillin could help to teach bacteria resistance. He warned about it in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech and in this admittedly scratchy-sounding 1946 interview with the BBC. I have a fear that when penicillin can be bought over the counter, patients will indulge in self-medication and in many cases, they will not take large enough doses. The dose is too small, the microbes will not be cured, and there is a danger that they will be educated to resist penicillin. Fleming said that antibiotics should only be used when necessary, and when they are necessary, should be used to the extent required to kill or weaken the infection. 
That's why doctors always prescribe you a specific amount of antibiotics and want you to take all of them, even if you start feeling better before they're finished. Fleming told a story designed to make it clear that misuse of antibiotics could be a life or death matter. He said, imagine a man who has a minor sore throat. Treating himself inadequately with penicillin and educating his microbes to resist the drug. Then, Fleming said, imagine that those resistant bacteria got passed on to that man's best friend, who got pneumonia, but now couldn't be helped by penicillin. Here the first man, by thoughtless use of penicillin, would be morally responsible for the death of his best friend. Alexander Fleming did not mince words, folks. Of course, here in the United States, we don't buy antibiotics over the counter, but get them through prescription. But even that doesn't guarantee appropriate use, says Dr. Paige Waterman, Vice Chair of Clinical Research at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. We still don't have very good tests that tell us right away, one, is it a bacteria, two, or two, is it a virus? So let's say the pediatrician seeing my child, you know, says, well, you know, they, they look pretty sick and they have a lot of things. Uh, you know, on the safe side, let's give them this antibody because I think they may have a bacterial infection, pneumonia or whatever. But maybe they didn't. Maybe they, maybe my child had a viral pneumonia. Um, so in that case, it's not as if the pediatrician set out to do the wrong thing, just wasn't armed with adequate diagnostics to make, you know, the best informed choice. So now my child has received antibiotics for an infection that she didn't, he or she didn't have. And then in her system, the, the body for the bacteria that we have all throughout us now have been exposed to this uh, antibiotic. So then the next time when my child actually has a bacterial infection, there's a little bit of memory for that antibiotic. And then that antibiotic may, may be likely to work less well. Uh, by the way, Dr. Waterman is a retired Army colonel who used to work with us here at Rare. As an infectious disease physician, right, and also as a parent, I think about how we prescribe antibiotics. So that brings in the, the idea of antibiotic or antimicrobial stewardship, right? What is stewardship? It's a process of, you know, doing things, informing things in a right way. And with regard to antibiotics, it's, you know, the responsible use of antibiotics. Antibiotic stewardship basically comes down to what Fleming was saying before about the proper use of antibiotics. First, use it only on a suitable microbe. Second, use it in such a way that it gets into contact with the microbe. Third, use it in sufficient dose. Fourth, keep up the treatment long enough to kill the microbe. We should say that there are other sources of education for bacteria, including antibiotics that are given to animals raised for food, and those that end up in wastewater when people, say, flush old pills down the drain. So now that we've covered the ways these microbes learn, let's get into what it is they've actually learned. What, in other words, are the tactics they're using to fight off antibiotics? You can broadly group into the three categories. This is Lieutenant Colonel Sobolski again. One is the bacteria achieves resistance by modifying the target of the antibiotic. So, you know, antibiotics um, are effective because they, they hit fundamental systems that the bacteria requires to live. So those are usually either um, replicating their, their DNA, um, producing proteins, or producing the, the, the cell wall that gives bacteria their integrity. And so, you know, there are protein targets and enzymes responsible for each of those that the antibiotics um, target, and by blocking their action, that's what kills or, or um, halts the growth of bacteria. And so 
through mutation, the bacteria are able to modify those targets in a way that makes the antibiotics less effective or, or ineffective. It's not a perfect analogy, but one way to think about this is to remember the heroic fight against another deadly opponent, the Death Star. In Star Wars, the Rebels had to defeat the Death Star by getting a photon torpedo into a thermal exhaust port to reach a reactor. The systems that the antibiotics target is like that reactor, a vulnerable spot which, once struck, takes out the threat. But if the designer of the Death Star had, say, a photon torpedo-resistant reactor, or at least one that was less explosive and had a backup, that movie might have ended very differently. So that's one way bacteria become resistant changing their vulnerable systems through mutation to become harder for antibiotics to affect. The second way? Um, the second is by the bacteria targeting and inactivating the antibiotic. And so the bacteria is capable of producing enzymes that you know, basically act on the, the antibiotic before the antibiotic can act on the bacteria. So kind of think of it as an arms race. And so... Um, if they're able to, to blunt the activity of the antibiotic, the antibiotic doesn't work. One example of this is Klebsiella pneumoniae bacteria, which produce carbapenemases, enzymes that break down carbapenem antibiotics. It's chemical warfare at the cellular level. The third way bacteria can become resistant is simply by limiting access to antibiotics. For example, the drugs can't usually get directly through the outer layers of the microbe, so they have to get in through structures called porins. I think we're talking about thermal exhaust ports again. Not quite, but they are holes in the bacteria's defenses. By changing the structure of these porins, the bacteria can sometimes keep antibiotics out. Think of it as, you know, if the antibiotic is a square and, and it modifies that porin from a square to a circle, suddenly it, it can't fit through that. And if the antibiotic does get in, some microbes have what are called efflux pumps, which are designed to catch things that are damaging to the microbe and toss it out. They're like the bouncers at the bacterial cell club. Yeah, you're not supposed to be here and, and you get out. The thing is, all of these three methods might exist in some dormant way until, as we said before, the microbe is trained to use it. When you think about mutations, it's really hard to sort of spontaneously add a new characteristic to bacteria. Most of what we're talking about is tweaking things. So it's taking a, a pump that exists for one purpose and just really either changing it by changing the, the, the compounds that it recognizes in pumps or just putting it into overdrive. The problem for the bacteria, though, is that all of these changes require energy, so they won't make them until they have to it takes a lot more of the energy they would normally put toward feeding and replicating to run 500 efflux pumps than it did to run one. But, like soldiers, bacteria understand protecting themselves against evolving threats. Prior to um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, we didn't train in body armor. We didn't train in IOTV because, um, you know, um, the onus was on mobility. So like your point, like, hey, we're going to kill the soldiers if we're asking them to do their mission, run around, and add an additional 30, 40 pounds on them. And then suddenly we're in an environment where people were dying because they were getting blown up or shot. So now it's, hey, yeah, this sucks for you, but you're going to wear that too because that's what's going to keep you alive. And so that's basically what the bacteria is doing. The, the fittest form of the bacteria is the one that's sort of at the wild type state. Um, just like the, the fittest, more, most mobile soldier is the one who's not wearing the, the 
the IOTV. But as soon as you apply that selective pressure, i.e. antibiotics or, or bullets, it makes a lot more sense to, to add that layer on because the alternative is, is worse than dehydration. One final thing worth mentioning. Humans, as we said, can affect the growth of antibiotic resistance, and it definitely feels like we're in a war against these bugs. But really, we only joined a war 100 years ago that was being fought without us for a long time before we brought our drugs to the fight. All of those products are, are either directly derived from nature or they're basically taking a natural product uh, as a, an inspiration and then the chemists modify it in, in a way that makes it a little more suitable. But ultimately, all that stuff derives back to things that are produced either by other bacteria or molds in nature. So what does that mean? It means that for billions of years before we ever you know, showed up on this planet, bacteria were living in the environment being exposed to these naturally occurring antibiotics. So that means that all those means of resistance that I mentioned, they already exist in nature. They may not be used by the bacteria in a highly efficient manner, but again, once you apply that selective pressure by giving it the antibiotic and saying, come up with a solution or you're dead, those solutions present themselves. You could sort of take bacteria that we deal with in, in a wound setting and a health setting in general and divide them into two general categories. You know, staph is a skin organism. It, it lives on our bodies. E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, they live in our gut. They co-evolved with primates. They live on us. They live on chimpanzees, all the related species. On the other hand, you have things like Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter. They're primarily environmental organisms. So they live in the water, they live in the soil. They're really, they're opportunistic pathogens, meaning they, they largely infect us with the advent of either war that produces blunt trauma and introduces them, or modern healthcare where you get put in a hospital and a piece of plastic or metal gets inserted in your body, which is sort of an artificial thing. Those environmental bacteria, the Pseudomycinacinobacter, they are armed to the teeth with natural means of resistance because they, they live cheek to jowl for billions of years alongside the streptomyces that produce all those antibiotics. So part of the reason why they're such hellish bugs to deal with is already in their genome. They have almost everything they need to combat almost everything that we have in our arsenal. And then it's just a matter of continual exposure once somebody's infected and they just... It's like, you know, dials, you know, on a motherboard, they just sort of dial them up as they need to. Because each one of those mechanisms of resistance costs them energy. So if they don't have to express them, they won't. But, but you put them in a situation where they have to, and they, they've got the tools they need to deal with almost anything we can throw at it. And that's our show. We'd like to acknowledge that these are obviously very truncated and simplified descriptions of how all these mechanisms work. So all you hardcore scientists out there, if you don't like the way we explained it, don't contact us. Contact Lieutenant Colonel Sobolski. In our next episode, we'll talk about combat wounds and how they're treated, following a multi-drug resistant organism from the battlefield to the home front. So please don't forget to subscribe. And if you like the podcast, Review us on your chosen podcast app. It helps people find us more easily.
Rare Science is hosted by Terry Welch and me, Captain Shanee Allen. It's produced by Terry Welch and Samir Deshpande. Rare Science is a product of the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, commanded by Colonel Chad Koenig and the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, commanded by Brigadier General Tony McQueen. Special thanks today to Dr. Gordon Joyce, who played Brendan the Clumsy Scribe for us, and to the BBC for the use of their interview with Alexander Fleming. And thanks to you for listening. See you in two weeks. <laughs>